Well, hey everyone, this is Athena and welcome to the All Things Podcast, where we gather once a week to learn and share stories about how God works all things together, writing a story of good because He is faithful and good. Every Wednesday, I'll be chatting with a friend who I know and respect, one of our Redemption Press authors, who will not only share a personal Romans 8.28 story, but also help to give you tips and tools for your life journey. Two episodes a month, we'll have an additional interview with a well-known author, and the other two episodes will include a time for Insider Insights, where I'll answer publishing questions from our listeners. So hey, Let's get started. Welcome to today's episode of the All Things Podcast. I am here today with a new Redemption Press author, Jim Keller, author of The Upside Down Marriage. So before I give him a proper introduction, Jim, welcome to the All Things Podcast. Thank you, Athena. I really appreciate it. It's fun for me to be here with you. Yeah. So Jim Keller is a licensed mental health counselor who specializes in marriage and family therapy. He is founder and president of Caris Counseling Center in Orlando, Florida. He leads a team of 18 therapists with a variety of specialties seeking to meet the emotional and relational needs of the Central Florida community. Jim was on crew staff for 28 years, primarily doing ministry on college campuses in the Northeast. He and his wife, Renee, were also on the speaker team for Family Life's Weekend to Remember marriage conferences for 18 years. He is currently one of the teaching ministers at Summit Church in Orlando, Florida. Jim and Renee have been married 44, count them, 44 years and have two adult children and five grandchildren. And just to share a few little known facts, he ran the Boston Marathon. Wow. He got engaged over the phone. I love that. Yeah. uh And he once had a beautiful head of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jim, it's just a delight to have you with us today. And before we jump into Uh, your book and some of the um, insights that you share. I would just love for our listeners to hear your Romans 828 story. I mean, we all have lots of them, but just um, whichever one the Lord leads you to share, just so we get just a a little inside peek into who you are and how God has worked in your life. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, It's a great question. And, and, I do have a lot of those moments in my life, but one I think that probably pertains more to what we're talking about today. Uh, I was in um, uh, New England. We lived in, in Massachusetts, and, and I was on crew staff. We were ministering to college students all through the Northeast, and, but I really felt I needed to do more theological education. I wanted to um, see if I could uh, move in a, maybe a pastoral direction. And there was a, a seminary, Gordon-Conwell, just north of Boston, mm-hmm. that um, I applied to and was accepted in. But I could only do uh, uh, midterms and, and interim classes where they would bunch the classes and, and in the summer as well. And so I had to travel two hours and 15 minutes one way to class. And um, wow. uh, 
did some summer work there as well, where I would just stay overnight uh, on, the, on the campus. But uh, I was about a year and a half, two years into my studies, and uh, the school decided to, I got a notification that they were doing away with the, with the very programs that would enable me to do the studies. No more uh, mid-session, no more in-session. And I just was, I was so discouraged. I, I thought, well, I, I thought I was headed in the right direction. Uh, but on a whim, I, I walked onto a campus that was literally five miles from my house, door to door in Springfield, Springfield College. And uh, they had uh, some graduate studies in, in psychology. And the last door in this hallway of the, all these faculty members was the name of a professor. And it was, and underneath that was marriage and family therapy. And that's, that's, that's what it took. And I, I said, I think this is where, where I'm being led to uh, through all that agony and disappointment, all those long drives over to North Shore, Boston. I, I, I found a place five miles from my home and I did my graduate work there and got a degree in 92 and uh, went, went on from there. Wow. I love that when, you know, we can't see it at the moment. It nope. just seems like, why God are you doing this? And no. then, you know, you look back and go, ah, that's, I love that. So what, what then led you to write a book on marriage? Well, I, uh, as you shared, I, I spoke along with my wife, Renee, uh, at Weekends to Remember Family Life with Dennis Rainey, of course, was uh, one of the founders and president um, until he stepped down a year ago. And I had uh, some time with him um, a few years ago, probably around 2011, I think. And, and he's always been on me to write a book. When are you going to write your book? When are you going to write your book? And I always put him off. But I, I was feeling... Uh, at that time that, you know, maybe I should do something. And um, remember we were at breakfast and he said that, and I finally said, okay, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do it. He said, send me, send me the first two chapters that you write and I'll have one of my writers look it over and we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but you have to do it by this date. So he was the guy who was, who, nice. who sort of spurred me on to do it. And um, I, I, I've always wanted to, to do some writing and uh, I, I had a degree in marriage and family therapy, and I thought this is these are the things that I'm passionate about, and um, so it was sort of it, the book was basically a compilation of of all the things that I've been learning as I've been able to uh, be with married couples and and help them through the ups and downs of of their relationship. So that's that's the story, and and um, Dennis was encouraging, and I said, okay, let's go. Yeah, that's I love that. So tell us how your book differs from other marriage books. There's a gazillion out there. So what sets it apart? Yeah, nothing like writing a book on an original topic, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, there are a gazillion books out there. And by the way, some wonderful and excellent books on marriage. And and that's one of the things that kept me from writing. What what do I have to say that's any new? And you, you really don't have anything brand new to say. But but I wanted to do it in a way that might might have uh, come across a little bit more user-friendly. I wanted to make it very, very practical. Uh, I wanted to share real-life stories. Uh, obviously, you can't share the exact stories of, of clients, but, but I wanted to use some of the experiences I've had with some wonderful people I've worked with as, as, as examples. Uh, and, and I wanted to, to make it a bit counterintuitive. I wanted to come at it from a different angle so people would, would uh, start to think through things like communication and conflict resolution and physical intimacy and all those things that are part of a marriage relationship, maybe in a little bit different way, uh, in a little bit different light. So um, that's why, that's why I, I, 
approach the book that way, and that's why I called it the upside down marriage. I wanted to just sort of shake things up a little bit and come at it from a different perspective. Nice. So, so what are some of those counterintuitive points that you make in your book? Uh, well, they're all in my chapter titles. You can go to the page of contents and, and see them. Um, uh, there, there are titles like Don't Talk So Much, uh, Stop Forgiving All the Time, Stop Spending So Much Time Together. Uh, I have a cha chapter entitled Fight More. Uh, I have a, a chapter entitled Have Less Sex, which that, that really uh, piques the interest of women. I see, I, I, that I see when they, when, they, uh, when they hear that chapter title. Uh, Don't Be Such Good Parents is one of my chapter titles. Um, embrace the fact that you're average. Uh, be less religious. All, uh, quit, quit trying to find your soulmate. Those, those are some of the chapter titles, and, and nice. I, I tried to come, come at some of the things that that we deal with, and in, in all of us deal with our marriages from a little bit different perspective. And, and so I just sort of tried to use those as hooks. Well, that and and definitely that makes me go, ooh, I want to read that <laughs> chapter. So uh, tell us more about some some of the chapter titles, why would you encourage married couples to fight more, talk less, go to church less? Yeah. That, um, I found that uh, many couples, uh, when they come in to see me, it's not that they have had um, too much conflict. They've had too little conflict. They don't deal with, with the, the conflicts when they arise. Too many issues get uh, people will respond to them. They might get upset and they might have words, but far too many times things settle down. Uh, the, the conflict is not really addressed appropriately. It's not resolved. And people, and, and mostly men, I'll confess for my gender, think that, okay, you know, things are back to normal. It's okay now. Well, it's not okay now. Right. Um, there, there, there are times when you, when you really need to sit down and talk through conflicts in a way that's going to be productive. And I, I encourage people to, to think about why, why we even have conflict. What's, what's the reason for it? Why does God allow it? And, and I talk about the fact that the conflicts need to have, have uh, the goal of understanding each other and two people growing together, me growing, my, my, my spouse growing. It, uh, conflict resolution builds teamwork and, and um, it helps uh, then set the stage for dealing with, with other issues as well. So then, I'll, then I just give, some, some principles for, for how to fight fair. And when you're gonna do it, if you follow these principles, I think there's a, there's a good chance you're gonna, you're gonna get through them okay. Like make sure that you give each other equal time and uh, you do opinion versus fact and no, no body language that's going to be, be uh, uh, negative. All those things are really, really important when it comes to resolving conflict. Hmm. And yeah, I can, I can attest to, um, I avoid at all costs, conflict, and that's not a good place to be because then, you know, it's not, you're not dealing with reality. Right. If, if you're avoiding that, and I see so often, especially in the church, you know, you have uh, horrible stuff that happens in a marriage, and, you know, the wife is supposed to forgive, and they forgive, and then you know, if the husband is maybe an abuser or there, there's some really unhealthy stuff going right. on, right. he never really takes responsibility for it because she just forgives him. And they just, in, instead of like, okay, 
forgiveness is there, but that doesn't mean trust is. And so what are we going to do to actually build trust and change the way things move forward? Yeah, I agree. I, I, one of my chapter titles, Good Forgiving So Much. And, and that's when I address the whole concept of abuse and um, uh, the, the, the fact that you, yes, we're all commanded to forgive as believers. But that forgiveness also is, is something that needs to lead to healing. And if, if it's a, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer in, in, in his book, Discipleship, talked about cheap grace versus costly grace. And, yep. and I think there's such a thing as, as cheap forgiveness versus costly forgiveness. Forgiveness, to say I forgive you and not address the pain and the damage that's been done is, is, is not to be uh, in, in the process in the way you need to be in the process. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. I don't like conflict either. And I, you know, I just, okay, it's, it's not that big of a deal, not that big of a deal. But there are things that need to be faced and need to be addressed. And, and so, yes, we take forgiveness seriously, but we also need to take seriously that there's a, there's a restorative process that needs to take place as well. Absolutely. And taking responsibility, each one taking responsibility for our, our failures instead of, you know, manipulating it into it's really the other person's fault or, you know, just all that stuff that comes with that cheap grace of just forgive and go on instead of actually dealing with it. So I, right. I love that you focus on that and in a healthy way, it needs, you know, we need to address things and, and grow out of the unhealthy, destructive behavior that's so easy to fall into. Yeah. Another chapter title I have is um, Don't Be So Religious. And um, this, is, this is one thing that I've, I found a lot of couples who, who, who are both believers. Um, there, there is this, this sense of uh, I'm right and you're wrong because I'm more spiritual than you are or I've got a better understanding of who God is, or I go to church more than you do. And um, the, the, the result of that is that leads to, to one person at least, and probably two that, that are just saying, hey, uh, I've got to have you change before I'm going to be happy in my marriage. And, and the, the focus has to be in healthy marriages, I've got to be responsible for how God wants me to grow and to change. And if I put my eyes on my spouse and blame my spouse as the one who's causing my difficulties, uh, I'm going to miss some very, very important lessons personally. Um, yeah, they're, we're all married to unhealthy people, and, and, uh, and we're unhealthy too. Exactly. We're, we're flawed people. Yeah. So I could, I could blame from now till the cows come home, but it's not going to do me any good. If I don't look in the mirror and say, okay, Lord, how do you, how do you want me to start here? Where do you want me to begin? Exactly. What needs to change in terms of my perspective? Uh, and I was just talking to a married couple who argued at least three quarters of, of the session. It wasn't a really productive session, but, but they both were trying to convince each other that the, the other spouse was the problem. And, it's, and, and, and you, can't, you can't get anywhere that way. No. And of course, you know, to... to but it's hard to bring people back for that because we tend to think, oh, if you wouldn't act that way, then I wouldn't feel this way. Well, true, but we have a responsibility in terms of how to healthily respond to that. So that, that's, that's a fun chapter. I, I like that chapter a lot. And, you know, we, we all have to get better at saying, okay, Lord, show me what I did wrong so I can own that and then 
you know, on both sides, if we do that and we actually have healthy, uh, you know, looking inside our own hearts and saying, Lord, I want you to convict me so I can take responsibility for this instead of placing the blame on someone else. Cause we're never going to grow and never get better for blaming somebody else. Cause that's just <laughs> excusing our behavior. <laughs> that's exactly right. I agree. Oh, wow. Another chapter I, I like because my wife is a much better parent than I was. The chapter title is, is don't be such good parents. And, um, the focus of that is making sure that the marriage relationship is going to be the priority relationship in the home. And that as much as we love those kids and, and want them to grow and, and, and develop into fully functioning adults, we want all, them also to know that the marriage relationship, their mom and their dad, uh, that's the priority relationship. And that relationship we're going to continue to work as being as healthy as possible. But way too many times, Kids get in the way of that. We, we form, you know, triangles and allegiances and, and, uh, uh, it, it, and, or it's just that they take up so much time in terms of our schedules that we forget, hey, we've got a marriage we've got to work on too. Instead of running Johnny to the soccer practice and, and, and Susie to ballet, um, which are all good stuff. I'm not saying you should. Right, 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 right. But, but it's, it's, it's how, how much attention are we going to pay to our marriage? I, I'm, continually surprised and somewhat saddened by the fact that that couples lose sight of that they think oh hey we're living together we're doing life together then that's going to that's going to be enough no mm -hmm. relationships if they're going to grow take intentionality and they take time yeah and i would guess that if you're not really doing so well in your marriage and you're not really resolving conflict and you're you know there's there's all those underlying issues it would be easy to pour into one of your kids so you don't have to deal with that. Because they're so loving and accepting and appreciative and, and you're, you know, for the wife, your lunkhead husband is, isn't paying attention to you, but your kids, that's a great relationship. Well, it's, it's fine. It's understandable to, to, to lean that way, but you've got to say, okay, what, what needs to change here? So I don't go in that direction. And uh, I think, I think, I think that's, uh, that's an important thing for, for couples. To, to deal with as well. Absolutely. Another chapter that I like is, is accept the fact that you're average. I have so many couples come in and I start the chapter this way, but, but I, I, I'm, it happens often. Couples will come in and they'll share their story and then they'll look, look at me and go, like, are we the worst couple you've ever seen? Have you ever seen a worse problem than this? And um, <laughs> it's almost like they want to be, they, they don't want to be average. If they're going to be bad, they want to be really, really bad. Right. And, and um, I, you know, I say, well, uh, I'm sorry, you just, you don't even, you don't even come close to the worst I've ever seen. And, and I say, in fact, you're, you're a pretty average couple, to be honest. And they're so disappointed at that. <laughs> and of course, the, and, and the other side of that is, especially Christian couples, you know, we, we want to be exceptional in our marriages. You know, we want to have the good marriage. We want to be the example of what God can, can do in our lives and what Christ has done for us, which is, a wonderful aspiration, but then we sort of make this false god of having this great relationship instead of really saying, "Hey, this is this is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that we walk with the Lord and then allow Him to to allow our relationship to grow." Mm. So it's 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 important to there. We all go through hard times. There is no marriage is wonderful and marriage is completely awful. There there are times when my marriage is really hard and there are times when my marriage is really good. 
yeah. and uh, accepting the fact that that's just going to be the way it plays out. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, and yeah. we, we've got to figure that out and, and, and go to the next step. So that's that's another one of my, mm. my, my fun chapters. So what are some practical things that you've learned in your own marriage of 44 years? Wow, that's, that's a good one. Um, well, I, it's fun to say that I love my wife very much, and um, I'm pretty sure she loves me very much too, although you know, I'll let her speak for herself. I think she'd say that. Uh, the first thing is, and it's, you think I would, you think I would know better, but I can be a coaster. And, and one of the things I've learned is you never coast mm. in marriage. You don't just, you don't just say, okay, well, now we're in a good spot. And, and now I don't have to quite do as much as I did before, or maybe pay attention as much as I did before. Um, and I, I'm continually reminded that I, I can never coast in my marriage. There are always challenges. There are always issues to be dealt with. And uh, uh, there, there are uh, things that I need to grow in and learn. And, and I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm just, okay, I've done it all. And, and uh, it's been a long time together. And, and, and it's, it's a lot easier. It sure is after 44 years. I mean, I know my wife well. She knows me. But you, but you, but you really don't want to be in a place where you ghost, and that's one of the things I've learned. Another thing I've learned is, um, I always want to be able to listen, and and I'm a, really I'm a professional listener when you think about it. Right. Um, I I do that for a living. Um, interesting story. My wife and I were coming out of church just a few years ago, and I said, "Hey, do you want to go to breakfast?" And uh, still fairly early, and she goes. Oh, I don't think so. I said, really? I said, we don't have anything to do. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I want to go to breakfast with you. I go, what? You don't want to go to breakfast with me? She says, I, I'm having some problems. I said, well, can we talk about it at breakfast? She said, okay. So we get to breakfast. And she, I said, what's, what's the problem? She said, look, she said, you know, you, you're, you're a good husband, but when I have problems and I try to share those with you, uh, I guess initial listener, but then I, then then you don't like it when I have problems and I tend to be dismissed. And I don't think you want to sit down and talk to me through all those things. And you know, she nailed me. She's absolutely right. I don't, I don't, I want my wife to be happy all the time. Right. For her sake. But you know, for my sake too, I want I want a happy wife. Yeah. And um, she was right on point. And, and the thing that I have to be reminded just because I can listen well in, in the office doesn't mean I'm going to be a good listener. And, well, especially when you, that's what you do all day, you probably like, okay, can I be done doing this? <laughs> <laughs> there is some of that, but you know what? Um, if I don't have energy when I come home, I need to do something different because I've got to save some for home too. Yep. Yep. Amen. Um, another thing I've learned is you never assume. Mm. You never assume. Um, I can be right on 95% of my assumptions but that 5% will always kill me yeah. and it will, it will hurt the relationship. And I, and I, and I don't want to assume something that I shouldn't assume. Um, uh, you know, how, how are we doing as a couple? Um, am I, am I doing the things that I need to do uh, to, to show you that I'm loving you the way I need to love you? Uh, those, those things are, those things are really, really important. And I, and I don't want to just, Assume that I'm doing something I'm not. Asking questions is very, very important, even after 44 years of marriage. Yeah. And, and, and um, open ended questions, right? Open ended questions. 
open-ended questions, not yes or no questions. Right. My wife is very willing to let me know, you know, when I ask the question, yeah, here, here's, here's, here's what I think uh, we need to do. And, and I, I guess the, the other thing I would say probably final is, is I, I'm, I'm great with my words, but sometimes my actions don't always follow up with my words. Mm -hmm. and I need to remember the love is action that, you know, cleaning up, cleaning up the pots and pans is just as important as saying, I love you. And probably for my wife, more important. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, 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 we all know that, but I don't want to forget that. Yeah. So those are some of the things. That's good. That's good. Okay. So as we kind of wrap this up, um, I would love for you to share a tip or a tool that would really kind of help our listeners continue to hold on to the fact that God really is working all things together for good, even when they can't feel it or see it, or the, the marriage just looks like there's no way he's going to work anything for good. Right. What would you say? Um, three things that I think is really important. If you're, if you're going to pay attention to your marriage and, and really work on some things that you need to work on. The first one is attention. You've got to give it attention. Um, there are too many distractions in our, in our culture, way, 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 way too many uh, distractions. One of the things with, with the coronavirus that I've seen is because couples are forced to be together more, they're, they're, they're realizing that things are not so great uh, because they've been too busy to deal with them before. So now, now that it's sort of like forced attention. Yeah, forced attention. But give it attention. The second thing is intention. Then once it has your, your attention, you've, you've got to decide, am I going to move towards solution or not? And mm. you would think, well, obviously you'd want to. Well, not everyone wants to. Not everyone, you might be too angry to do it. You might be too hurt to do it. You might be just too worn out to do it. Um, but there, it, but it, it takes intention to, to address those problems. And then uh, it, we alluded to this earlier, but uh, it's not just a couple's problems. There are two individuals in this, and and there needs to be you need to give individual attention to yourself. There has to be some some very uh, uh, in depth soul searching. God, what do you want me to learn? How do you want me to how do you want me to respond? Um, what is it in my life that I need to change instead of me worrying about my husband or my wife doing or not doing certain things? Yeah. And if those, if, if, if you answer yes to all those, I think you're well on your way to, to really tackling some, some problems that will help you in the years to come. Amen. Amen. So um, if we have some people listening today that would love to find you online or on social media, where is the best place to connect with you? Um, just go to my website, Karis Counseling Center, and, and just, just uh, search for Karis Counseling Center, C-H-A-R-I-S in Orlando, Florida, and my website will come up and, and they can communicate with me there. Uh, and uh, you can see, you know, who I am and, and uh, see what our staff is like and, and the mission that we're called to. They can connect with me uh, uh, that way. Wonderful. Well, it has been a joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule. And I uh, just blessings on your ministry as you continue to encourage and equip couples to, um, you know, live a life that glorifies him. Yeah, well, I'm glad to do it. Thank you so much. It's been delightful being with you. You bet.
In May, God gave me a vision of a movement. He gave me the name She Writes for Him, and I knew it would start as a book compilation, then a podcast, and finally a conference. Well, here we are a year later, and She Writes for Him, Stories of Resilient Faith, launched on May 12th, featuring Carol Kent, Tammy Trent, and Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, along with 27 brave women who shared their hard stories of abortion, depression, betrayal, loss, and shame, and declared how God worked redemption in their lives. The second edition is finalizing submissions, and best-selling author Liz Curtis Higgs leads the lineup of contributors sharing on suffering, cancer, mental health, addictions, and spiritual abuse, for she writes for him stories of living hope. This very podcast launched in February of this year, declaring the faithfulness of God in working all things together for good. And when we had to cancel our in-person She Writes for Him writing retreat in April, we hosted the first 21-day She Writes for Him boot camp online and helped take 40-plus women from concept to manuscript blueprint through 90-minute interactive virtual workshops, daily writing tips, and multiple coaching sessions. As the pandemic continued to interrupt our spring and summer conference plans, God birthed the conference I knew would be, but had no idea it would look like this. A virtual conference with three full days and 33-plus publishing professionals found 400 hungry attendees waiting and ravishing in the wisdom and the love that was poured out through the presenters. We've rescheduled the retreat for this September and still have a few slots open, and another boot camp is scheduled for October. And we've initiated the She Writes for Him tribe, a monthly membership online where you can learn your writing craft, network, grow, and have a safe place to develop your voice with other sisters who love the Lord. Join the many women finding their writing identity through the She Writes for Him movement at SheWritesForHim.com. All right. Well, we are back again with another special episode with another She Writes for Him boot camp graduate. And her name is Jessica Van Rokel. And we are so excited to have her here today to not only share an amazing Romans 8:28 story from her life. We all have lots of them, but she really has an incredible story that deals with postpartum depression. And um, those of you who know me know that I am um, a real advocate of those who need to tell their stories that are the kind of stories that either have a stigma or they just, people don't really like to talk about this topic and we need to talk about it. And so I'm so excited, Jessica, to have you on today to share so welcome to the All Things Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I loved the She Writes for Him conference, and I am 
so excited to join your your family as an author so i'm thrilled and uh, family is kind of where my story starts i longed for a family growing up um, i'm from a broken home uh, just dealt with all of that growing up and then i became i got married at 20 and i just wanted to have a family just wanted to have a family but i didn't expect that having a family would create a whole new set of set of problems and issues. Number one, I didn't know how to be a mom. So I started praying and diving in. And I also didn't expect to experience postpartum depression. After three out of four of my babies, I I went into the I went into this spiral. I called it, I believe that life is full of ups and downs. We go up and we go down and we go up and we go down. And and that's the kind of it's a fulfilling life because life isn't meant to be just one static line. And so, but I realized that I was stuck in this bottom loop and I would I would slide up and slide back down and slide up and slide back down. And so I ended up having to get some help for, for my postpartum depression. Um, but after um, when I was pregnant with my third child, a boy, I have three girls and a son. And so here he was, my first boy. I was so excited and nervous. I was used to girls and here I'm going to have a little boy. And um, I just remember going into the, to the delivery optimistic. You know, I've had, I've had um, difficult delivery, so I knew it would be hard, but I was, I was firmly expecting God to intervene on my behalf, and, and yet um, the whole delivery was shrouded in disappointment. Circumstances surrounding his delivery didn't turn out the way I hoped for or prayed for or even expected God to act on. You know, I remember hearing the back of my head people saying, well, you got to pray expecting pray expecting God to move. And I'm thinking, okay, what am I supposed to expect? My way? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I want my way, my way or the highway. You know, is it that? I mean, I know the right answer is to say God's way. I mean, I just know the right answer is to say God's way. But yet I persisted. I always, not always, but I'm learning not to persist in pursuing my way. But in this instance, you know, this is 15 years ago. Um, I, I felt like I knew exactly what God needed to do. And then I was going to sit back and watch for him to move. But except I missed him. Mm. I missed seeing him move because I was expecting him to move my way when he was moving his way. Wow. So my induction with my third, my son, I was induced with all four of my children. I have an issue. I just need the induction. And we all know that that's kind of a, painful route to go. I mean, I don't know why they say that childbirth is painful no matter what. But here I was. Um, the induction got started wrong. It took a wrong turn. Mm -hmm. I ended up going through shift change with the doctor and the new doctor wanted to do things differently than the doctor who started me. So we had to restart the entire process. I had insensitive nursing staff. I had my husband telling me to be nice and I'm laying in bed going, don't tell me to be nice. I'm having a baby. Come on. <laughs> and then the, the nursing staff wouldn't believe me when I would rate my pain because I'm the type of person that when I'm in pain, I get still and I get quiet. So here, here they saw this woman laying in bed, not moving, not making a sound and saying that her pain was at a seven or eight. And so they, they didn't, 
they didn't hear me. They didn't hear my cry for pain relief. I'm, I'm not going to do a natural birth when I'm dealing with this level of pain. And when my labors last 30 hours or more, that's not an option. Right. So I wanted the pain relief that, that I knew was available to me and it didn't come. So I'm laying in bed, desperately praying that God would do a miracle that something, he would do something for me, whether my baby would be born, I would progress, you know, the pain would go away somehow miraculously. Right. The, the labor pain would move from the back to the front, something. I was desperate. And I thought, surely God will answer my prayer because after all, I love him with my whole heart. I serve him and I serve his people. So surely God will answer my prayer. Surely. But as the hours dragged on and the nurses grew colder, disappointment lodged deep within. Mm. And I felt like God went silent. I felt betrayed. I felt like he just left me and abandoned me right there in the delivery room. Now I had my son in the middle of harvest. So that meant that I gave birth and we went home because my husband had crops in the field. So here I am, three children under the age of five, numerous church ministry activities, trauma from that nursing staff, and the fact that I felt God abandoned me. I went into autopilot. I went through the motions, numb, yet something simmered in the depths. Even though I was numb, And even though I felt God abandoned me, I still went through the motions of reading my Bible. I went to church. I played worship music. I taught my little ones about the Lord and how to pray. But all the while, I felt this desperate storm inside, this desperation of seeking for a word from the Lord, a message from him, glimpse, hope, because not only was I feeling abandoned, but I was struggling with this postpartum depression of sadness and fatigue. I mean, I had three children under the age of five, and one of them has um, sensory processing disorder. Mm. And so here I was, just barely holding it together. I was in charge of women's ministries. I was involved in youth ministries. I was on the music ministry team. I had my fingers, I think, in every ministry pie there was to be in church, and yet I felt dead inside and you felt abandoned by god yeah. like he so yes. you're doing all this yay yeah. jesus stuff and yeah. and i felt completely abandoned and i felt depressed and i and honestly i'm like i don't know if i can keep it together anymore yeah. i don't know and i was i'm i was literally at the point every morning i'd open up my bible and i think what's the point why am i reading this word why God is not showing up for me. He is completely silent. So until one morning, you know, I grabbed my Bible, my journal, I plopped into my chair, big sigh, thinking this is a waste of time. Why am I doing this? God has left me. He's not going to, he's not here. This word, it says it's living, but where's my living God? Hmm. And so by this time though, this wasn't just eight weeks after my little boy was born. This was 18 months after my baby was born. And in fact, he was a toddler. And in fact, I was pregnant with my fourth. So here I am thinking, what's the point? A year and a half later. And the idea of facing another labor, 
like the one that I had gone through with my son, left me terrified. Mm. I went into every prenatal appointment in tears. They would ask me how I was. I would just break down and cry. I'm not a crier, but I broke down and I cried. So here I am. I'm settled in my chair with my Bible wondering, I don't even think I can do this. I don't. God left me. I'm just going to leave him. I'll just be a surface Christian. Everyone else does it. Why can't I? (laughs) So, but no, God is faithful because I opened up to Psalm 18. And that's a fairly long chapter in in Psalms. Mm -hmm. And so I started to read. And within the first five verses, I thought, well, forget it. I guess this is just another morning where I'm just going through the motions. I'm reading it like a good Bible study girl, you know, because I want to set an example for my kids. But God isn't showing up for me. Ugh. So I just kept reading. And I am so glad I did. I got to verse 28. And at this moment, it's like the light switch got flipped on in my heart and flipped right back off. But it, it, it got flipped on enough that I, I could see some hope. And this is what the verse says. It says, you, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. Mm. And it was those verses that made me realize God was still with me. God had not abandoned me. Two things. For months, I felt trapped in a dark cave where I literally felt like I was living not by sight, but by faith. God felt silent. I felt he abandoned me. I was lost. And my long-held belief of the fact that God will never leave me and God will never forsake me had been challenged by his so-called silence. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't sense him. I couldn't hear from him and I couldn't see him. But that verse flashed hope. It was like, here's some hope, my child, my darling. Here's some hope. I'm still here. (laughs) I'm still here. Yep. And I saw his faithfulness. I saw his faithfulness. I saw that he'd kept my lamp burning. I hadn't been able to. All that, all that rote faithfulness of doing going through the going through the motions supposedly that I thought that I was doing of reading my bible praying leading my children working serving in the church he had been keeping my lamp burning through all of that but then he flipped the light on in my darkness and it was when he did that i saw myself because i saw him And when I, and it wasn't God who had gone silent in that delivery room. It was me. Mm. It was my disappointment. It was in my disappointment in how God chose to answer my pleas for help. And that disappointment then had turned into anger. And that darkness that I found myself in had nothing to do with God but with my pouting, temper tantrum throwing self. And that shock of that discovery, I mean, threw me to my knees in repentance Mm. and also praise. See, I had been holding a grudge against the Lord. God hadn't left me in that delivery room and he didn't go silent. His answer was a no, child, let me deepen your dependence on me. And I spurned his gift. 
God's steadfast love and faithfulness never waned in my two year long pity party. He stayed near and he kept his promise that he would never leave me nor forsake me. I hardened my heart against him because I misunderstood a no for an I don't like you answer. Ooh. Say that again. I hardened my heart against him because I misunderstood a no for an I don't like you answer. Wow. How often do Christians do that? I think we do it. I I find I do it. I did it. And sometimes I still am tempted to do it. But I remember this. I remember that even though dark storm clouds and deep disappointment shroud my memories of my son's birth, God in his mercy used it to refine my understanding of who he is and how he loves me and likes me, even when the answer is no. Mm. And so I learned to trust him despite my circumstances. I learned that while I had postpartum, I also had a spiritual postpartum, if I could use that term as well. I had a physical postpartum that I struggled with after having each of my babies, well, except for one. And then I also had this spiritual postpartum, as in a God didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't birth in me what I wanted him to do. And so then I held this grudge against him. I was angry because I failed to understand. And you know what happens when that happens, when you hold a grudge and you're angry, you go to bed angry. Yep. And what does scripture say about that? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because you open up the, you just open up yep. the door and let the enemy come yep. right on in. Those little footholds, bitterness, yep. that's a little foothold. Holding on to a grudge, that's a foothold that the enemy can use to climb into your life. Yep. And um, he, uh, God His faithfulness, though, opened my eyes. It was a two-year process, just about. Right. But he was steadfastly faithful, and I am so thankful he did. So thankful. So he worked something of depth in you. He refined you out of what looked bad. Yes. Looked devastating. He worked good out of that. Yes. He knew. He knew knew. what he needed. So not the epi- not the painkiller. <laughs> no, not the painkiller. <laughs> Cuz by the time they gave it to me, I was in so much pain it didn't work. Right. So right. it was um I don't know. He he used that horrible situation, that horrible circumstance in a delivery room that I truly was devastated by. He worked it out for good because what he did is he revealed more of his character. He he revealed to me that sometimes a no is the best answer that he can give. Yeah. And you know, we're just in America. We don't like anyone telling us no. No, we don't. (laughs) We're so spoiled. We are. Gosh. Okay. So Jessica, if, um, if you could leave one thought for our listeners to ponder as we wrap this up, what would that be? I think I would have to say to really ask God to open your eyes 
to his perspective on your circumstance. Because yeah. we are flawed, so we're going to look at things through a flawed lens. The heart of the heart, our hearts are deceptive above all else. Yeah. And um, we we can we can think we know it all, but be completely wrong. And our thoughts are not his thoughts. No. <laughs> and so yes, that is a prayer he loves to mm -hmm. answer. Lord, yeah. give me your perspective of my circumstance. Yes. That is a game changer. It is a game changer. And if I, I could say one more thing mm -hmm. to really view, um, to view our circumstances through the lens of his love and faithfulness and to not let what we see happening um, detract us from our faith and his faithfulness towards us. Amen. So that's just keeping our eyes fixed on him and his character, yes. which is going good instead yes. of on what's happening. Yeah. Well, that's, hey, that's a good word for everything that's going on around us today in this crazy world with the COVID and all yes. this other stuff. So very appropriate. Well, this was just a delight. It was great to have you on today, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to have you on again once your book, Reframing Rejection, is in print. And then we'll have a full-on show with you. And that'll I'm just looking forward to that already because I know how powerful your message is. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It is a gift. Thank you so much. Amen. So thanks for joining us today for the All Things Podcast, brought to you by Redemption Press and the Romans 828 Bookstore. So hey, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you would consider sharing this episode with your friends on social media, of course, only if you thought it was helpful. Or if you haven't yet left a review of the podcast on Apple, I would really appreciate it as you know, it'll help other people find the show and let them know it really is a good one to listen to. So thank you so much for listening today, and I'll see you next week.